How does someone go from working in tech to becoming one of the world's leading authorities in flirting to starting her own tech startup? How do you market a product that delivers such incredible results that nobody believes you? My guest today is the wonderful Elizabeth Clark, a woman with one of the biggest go big or go home attitudes I've seen in a while. Elizabeth has many strings to her bow, and in addition to being a flirting expert, she's also an award-winning entrepreneur, international keynote speaker, mentor, and tech influencer. My name is Charlie Wyman, and I'm the host of the Curiosity Key podcast, where I interview other curious thinking advocates that believe that curiosity really is one of our biggest assets and can be used as a huge force for good and strategy for successful business and marketing. Elizabeth shares many words of wisdom in this episode, as well as lessons learned, triumphs, and more. So be sure to take notes, but if you're on the move, be sure to check out the show notes on my website. Just visit charliewyman.com forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I do. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Curiosity Key podcast. And I am very excited to be joined with Elizabeth Clark. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thank you so much for joining me. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this, um, I have so much fun on this podcast. <laughs> Normally, it's one of those that you have the conversation before you hit record and then everybody else is like, what's the end joke? Why is everybody laughing? What's going on? Um, but yeah, it's all good fun. Anyway, before we kick this off, do you want to tell us a little bit about who you are and a bit about your background before we talk about your tech tech company? Sure. Uh, I am Elizabeth Clark. I am based in sunny Silicon Valley, um, fastest growing tech hub in all of Europe by headcount. That uh, was this tiny little place just north of Manchester. Um, but we have great pipes here, so it's very easy to do tech. Uh, I founded Dream Agility um, in, in its original form a few years back. Um, bit of an accidental tech founder. I never, if you said to me 10 years ago, you're going to run an AI and machine learning company. I would have said, oh, oh, oh. but then if you said to me 10 years before that, you're going to be a best-selling flirting expert, I would have gone, oh, 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 as well. So you never know what life's going to throw at you, but you've just got to sort of take it on board. So, uh, yeah, we're based in Ramsbottom because I live in Ramsbottom. Uh, my children go to school in Ramsbottom, so it seemed a very sensible place to be. Um, we uh, There's about sort of 12 of us here. The office has space for 30. So... That will be the maximum amount of people I will ever employ. But if you look how big um, the likes of Twitter and people like that got just on 15 people, that's kind of my goal to sort of automate and expand as much as possible with the least amount of people as possible. And that's always the way we work. Uh, and the technology makes that much, much easier now. Brilliant. So the question on everybody's minds right now is, how does a flirting expert and an authority on flirting get into tech? <laughs> <laughs> well, funny you should ask that. Uh, before I was a flirting expert, I worked for a technology transfer company. So we had a patent portfolio of about 400 patents. Um, we grew the workforce from sort of sub 30 to 180, 200 staff. We employed tribologists, dynamicists, analysts. Uh, and it was in the days before the internet was as it is now. There was no such thing as LinkedIn then. So if you were going to recruit somebody from Canada, you had to put an advert in the paper and things like that. So uh, it, the recruitment side of things was very hard. And then when you actually got people in, you had to get them into teams that worked very, very quickly, which was quite challenging because uh, everyone I employed that was a tribologist had a PhD and was over six foot five. And we hired a technician that was six foot seven. And I thought they were all going to go on strike because like, don't you ever hire anyone taller than me ever again. It was just bizarre. But um, we invested an awful lot in occupational psychology so we could actually um, get the teams to perform. Because we it started off, we'd have one team performing brilliantly, another team not performing brilliantly, but with exactly the same types of people in it. And we thought, what, what's going on here? They should be but it's brilliant. And it was the underlying motivation, personalities, everything else that, that, that made the difference. So the company spent a lot of money training me up on all that sort of stuff. And we did that for six years. We went to 250. Uh, we, we demerged and floated for 50 million. So that was all very exciting. Um, and at the end of it, I thought, well, I'd like to do something completely different. I've no idea what. What am I really good at? Well, I can talk a glass eye to sleep and I can flirt like a champion. Why don't I become a flirting expert? So um, I did that, but I did it for mainly companies. So um, breast etiquette, kissing etiquette, handshake etiquette, that sort of thing. All the things that we're not allowed to do anymore. 
we need a whole new etiquette. You know, when you meet people now, it's really weird. And, and Zoom and stuff like that, people do not realize the negative impact they're having by sitting on a Zoom like this. You know, how are you supposed to build rapport? So uh, there's probably a new career out for me now as a, as a sort of COVID body language expert now. Yeah, I did that for uh, about 10 years. Uh, I got asked to write all sorts of books. Um, so Flirting for Dummies is one of my books, and I still get, uh, you know, royalties and things on it, which is very nice. Uh, I did every kind of rubbish TV program you could ever imagine. Um, I got sponsored by the likes of Impulse and um, Sex and the City to do stuff. So it's all quite exciting. And then I just thought, can I be a flirting expert forever? Um, and I thought, well, you know, we had a bit of an incident at my son's school when I'd gone in to do a talk. Um, and uh, I just thought, well, maybe now is the time to get back into technology. But I wasn't sure quite what I wanted to do. Um, I, but my husband had been working for, I think it was We Buy Any Car at the time. And everyone, when they were building things, were building in silos. You'd build a website, you'd build a mobile app, you'd have a Facebook app, and you couldn't actually see the user journey. What we wanted to be able to see was how did that person go across this? We thought if we get one set of business logic, we can actually track the, the user journey over that if we skin everything off that. So that was the original plan. And that was how I got back into technology. Uh, and then Google through Google Shopping out in February 2013. Um, uh, and that's, that's where everything changed. And nobody else changed with it. And that created an opportunity for us to do what we're doing now. Love that and what so it's an interesting point nobody else was doing what you were doing or moving <clears throat> fast enough why do you think that companies aren't moving fast enough to seize these opportunities uh if you've had well glenn my husband uh, has managed some of the biggest google accounts in the world so he knows all the people at kenshu and marine and uh, adobe or ef as it was so he was able to just pick the phone up and say this Google Shopping, because it was terrifying. Google Shopping had been called frugal before. It was free. It didn't matter how badly you did it. You do it badly when you're paying for it. It's like taking your money into the street and setting fire to it. It's terrible. So um, he was able to contact those guys because he knows them. And he said, what are you doing about this? Uh, and they said, nothing. We've had hundreds of millions of pounds in investment. It would require a completely different architecture and infrastructure than the one we have at the moment. There is no way we can go to our shareholders and say, we're going to tear down everything we built and start again. So it was a case of these big ones were so big, they couldn't really do anything about it. And they were just basically planning to shoehorn in what they uh, feeds into what they have already and try and make it work rather than do something from scratch. So uh, we thought this is an opportunity for us. Um, but you know what it's like when you have an idea. You think, is this idea too good to be true? You know, because it's your idea. You think, oh, it's brilliant, it's brilliant. But we wanted to get some balance on it. So we went to um, Manchester Business School. And uh, Glyn had done his MBA there. So he knew all the guys there. We spoke to um, Phil, who uh, uh, runs all the MBA programs and um, with, with the companies. And we did a thing where we got a load of MBA guys to work on our project and tell us, was it an idea or not an idea? And it came back. Um, it was an idea, which was great. And they gave us loads of sort of feedback as well. So that was a sort of six-week project. And it's interesting the way they do it because you kind of got a bid. So as a company, you put your proposal forward and you've got to make them want to do it. So you're in like a competition. And when we went in for the presentation things where they sort of present to us and then you have to decide, do you like them? Do they like you? Is there a deal to be done here? Um, I had a baby with me. Ted was only a few months old. Um, in fact, born in December, February. So he would be two or three months old, actually. And um, I'd taken him with me and he had a massive poo, poo stank. So the bit where we're supposed to negotiate about, well, what do you think about this? I said, I really like you. Do you like me? Do we want to go together? Yes, Mike, go change this nappy now. So uh, it was a very short thing to get to grips on that, but it was possibly one of the best things we could have done because when you're looking for investment, you then you've got a Manchester Business School MBA project that only cost me 500 quid. Oh, brilliant. I was going to ask you that. Was that something that you paid for or was that something that you just did with the school? No, 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 you pay for it. And um, they have different ones. They, they start from £500 and go up to tens of thousands of pounds. So uh, you've just got to be around at the right time of year for the right thing that's on. I know the right people to ask to make sure you get the cheap one. Ah, there you go. Really important. So there's a few points where you've just raised, which is all about network. So a lot of the things that you've done based on the people that you already know, um, and then just just picking up the phone. So what advice would you give to somebody that has an idea and wants to see see it work? Um, 
you've, you've got to get some kind of validation for him. And I think depending on your gender uh, has a big, there's a big difference in it. So uh, I mentor female entrepreneurs because I think a lot of the time women have great ideas, but they tend not to come from a tech background. Where if you're a bloke and you've got an idea, you probably come from a tech background. When my daughter did um, computer science, there was 400 kids doing A-level computer science. There was four girls doing it. And at the end of the first year, halfway through the A-level, there was two girls left. And nobody spoke to them. So it's quite hard for a woman kind of, I made her do A-level computer science because my elder son had gone to the university to do computer science. He hadn't done it. He'd done economics, maths and other things at A-level. But he felt at a disadvantage because he'd not done computer science. So I said to Lucy, do computer science. I said, we never, you, you always have a job if you could do computer science. Um, so she'd done A-level and she hadn't really enjoyed the experience because it was so alienating. So as a, as a woman who's maybe been working for a while, you spot an idea, you have an idea, one of the hardest things is getting validation on it and also breaking into that tech community. It can help you because there's a lot of frogs out there you've got to kiss. So um, if you've got an idea, find somebody who has roots into tech if you're not a techie um, and that will help you navigate the route to avoid all the frogs you're going to have to kiss on the way. That is great. Great advice. Because uh, I do uh, business mentoring with Tech Manchester and we get quite a lot of people coming in with an idea and it's a case of like matching the right mentor with the right startup. And it's, uh, it's a great thing to do. And there are so many, like Manchester is such an incredible place to be if you have an idea. There are loads of accelerators and think tanks and places that you can go. Um, so based on your experience, what, what's the best way of choosing the right person to work with? So understanding who is the best person that can help you get your idea off the ground. Are you talking in terms of um, developers to do things or mentors to help you or um, both actually? A, a bit of both really. It's understanding who, who you want to work with because if you're going into it and you're like, oh, I'm a bit like, you know, a deer in headlights, don't really know what to do. <laughs> um, yeah, what, what would be your top tips? The... Uh, Get yourself a mentor. As you say, there's some really good mentoring schemes out there. The thing I like about the um, Manchester Tech one, Tech Manchester one, is it's a very structured program. So they train the mentors, they train the mentees. Um, <clears throat> the mentees have to do a lot of work because it can be hard work being a mentor. But if the work is done by the mentee, it also focuses on things that the mentee wants. So um, they're organized. There's a timeline to it. Uh, and you're, you, So you will see results as you go along. So the lady that I mentored from um, the Manchester, Tech Manchester, um, it's confusing because I did Tech Manchester and Manchester Tech Trust, sound very similar. Uh, but the lady I did, Dot, she lives up the road in a farm and, and also pointed her in the direction of Manchester Business School. So she did a program with them as well. Um, and then finding the right technical people because there's a lot of people who give you a lot of slather. Thankfully now, there are lots of um, places you can go where you can have a sample of somebody's work. So um, I'm trying to remember the name of the company. It's Twine, um, run by Stuart Logan in Manchester. I think it's Twine, where you can basically ask for people to do some freelance work. You can put some money out there uh, and you can see the quality of your work and you can look at their portfolio and see the sort of things that they can do for you. Um, People do, women in particular, tend to latch on to a techie if they find one, which is quite dangerous because the first one you find is probably not going to be the one I went through several. First one I found was absolutely crackers. He lived like a rock star. He, he couldn't drink or do more drugs if he tried. But he was full of, it's all right, it's all right, it's going to be okay, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do the other. But he was a compulsive liar. I shall not name any names. You know who he is. Um, but you get kind of, you can get sucked in because you don't know this stuff. You can get sucked in and you need to sort of get people around you. There are organizations um, who have tech talent available, but don't necessarily have the idea. So, like a Padme now have an investment arm where they basically, so they've got all this resource, um, but they need the ideas to be able to use the resource. So, they'll do a deal with you where you know, you provide the idea, they provide the tech and, and that sort of thing. Do you have to be a little bit careful with those? Because I do know a few people who've been burnt, but it's a, maybe a slightly safer way in um, if you're going into an established development team. So they're, they're the sort of two things I'd go for. Look for a decent mentor, go for a proper scheme where it's structured um, and you're going to move it along and do your bit. Don't turn up to meetings unprepared. If somebody's giving you their time, do your bit and um, 
be prepared to hear things you don't like, but be prepared to ignore them as well. <laughs> That's great advice. Great advice in terms of doing the work. I mean, I've sat, I've been very fortunate with the people that I mentor. And uh, so, so I can't relate to this personally, but there are other mentors in, especially in the tech manchester space that their mentees just don't show, don't do the work and don't show up. So uh, yeah, I would definitely second that put in the work yourself and also ask questions as well. So, you know, mentors can't help you with, uh, they don't have a crystal ball and they can't answer the questions that you want to ask, but you haven't yet come, come to. So yeah, great advice around that and finding schemes. So let's go back to talking about your journey. So you've done the project with uh, the business school and you've, validated the idea what steps did you then take um to kind of get the idea into the market well we thought well we have to sort of show we'd we'd already built um uh, a sort of prototype this this platform that i wanted to build we'd already built a prototype i've managed to um persuade some jewelers um the jewelry sector is a funny sector because they have a lot of money if they've been in it for years they own their buildings they've got millions of pounds worth of stock if they're new to it it's a whole different story they're it's very it's a, it's a fine line but the guys have been around for years uh we we got a group of them together seis had just come out which is an investment vehicle um, and we managed to persuade a group of them to invest the equivalent of about a quarter of a million quid over two years. So that had paid for me to do all the work I wanted on the platform that I had. Uh, unfortunately, very, very, very shortly after I signed the contract with them, I found out I was pregnant, which was a bit of a surprise. And at that point, I'm like, oh, my God, I just I want to give the money back and forget about the whole thing. And, and I didn't. I sort of persevered with the pregnancy and the, and the project. The, the project had to be delivered by Christmas Eve. The baby was due on Christmas Day. So everything was quite tight. A uh, lot of working from long ways, not like this, trying to get everything done. But we did it. Um, but when the Google Shopping thing happened, it was just a whole a whole different thing. So we needed to um, find some investment. So we built a wireframe which is just what it looks like, but there's nothing behind it. Uh, and we went to speak to lots of people and we found looking for money back then in Manchester was very, very hard. Everyone had heard of digital, but nobody really understood tech. Um, it's, it's a completely different ballgame now, but back then it was very, very, very hard as a tech company to get investment. And um, a lot of people said, you know, love you, Elizabeth, love your idea, have no idea what you're talking about. And because I don't understand it, I'm not investing. So I got that a lot, you know, door shot, door shot, door shot. And then we've had a couple of people, um, a couple, couple of different parties that were, were interested. Um, and we went down a route with those and uh, we managed to sign one of them where it was like three quarters of a million quid over three milestones. We they deliberately put the milestones in to make them feel comfortable. And they were sales milestones, technology milestones and um, spend milestones. And had I realised how hard it was going to be to sell something on the first day, we'd never have agreed to it. But, you know, that's, <laughs> you live and learn. But we did it. We hit our milestones. We went back to the investor and said, that's it, we've hit our milestones. And he wasn't very happy. I think he was expecting us not to hit them. So uh-huh. um, if you don't hit your milestones, they could then turn around and say, well, I'll give you the money, but I'll give it to you a much worse deal. So, um so we didn't have a great experience with investors, but it's, it's different now. There's different types of people around. There's new types of sharks that emerged um, that weren't there before, um, but it, it's much easier. There's much more government money around in, in various funds and things, so you can get some early stage money quite easily. Brilliant. So where would, if somebody's completely new to this, where would you recommend that they start looking in order to get that first level of investment? Because I get asked this question all the time. Oh, do you? <laughs> Well, I would start with the Growth Hub because they're the people that have all the, and there's Growth Hubs all over the UK now, not just in Manchester. But the, there's a, and there's so many bits to it. There's one bit called Access to Finance Northwest, which is the, the, uh, the hub that um, looks after sorting out money. Because um, the other thing is you might not want, if you can get your project to a stage where you're making some money and things are looking quite good, you can actually get a loan. So um, we've just got a loan for the work we want to do uh, rather than take investment. If I can just keep taking loans for as long as you've got to make money to get a loan. If you're not making money, you're not going to get a loan. Um, So I'm trying to do as much of that as I can before I go and ask anyone else for any other type of money, just so that we have the the control in the business. Um, The access to finance guys, there are, if you look at the, the British Business Bank's website, 
you'll find out all the different people who have these pots of money for all the different types of things. And they're the ones you start with because they, um, they're the easiest ones to get money from. That's terrible, isn't it? Easiest ones to get money from because everyone's got to invest something in their local economy. If you look, I'm in the borough of Bury. So Bury give their money into a centralised pot and it's distributed out from there. So you haven't got the individual councils looking after it. They've all put their money into people's pots uh, and it's sort of centrally distributed. So the, the terms of investment aren't quite as awful as it would be um, if you were with a, an angel investor and you'd been screwed over. So you, you do have to treat these things like a marriage. It's all very well and good getting into bed with someone, but if, if you were going to suddenly not get on and get divorced, how would you get out of it? Uh, and you have to do your research. You have to try and find companies who's had money from them to find out how did that go? Have they enjoyed working with them? You're always going to hear bad things because, you know, you know that, uh, on balance, do you hear more good than bad? Um, and what I hear about the ones who have the government money to invest is they're usually they're not laid back, but it's not like having um, a traditional kind of VC on your back. And the VCs have got very, very tough about what they'll invest in. They're looking for um, on the AI side of things. You said AI a couple of years back. It would be, just give us your bank account details. We'll pop it in there for you. Now it's the case that we want to see one million ARR on your uh, new product. And you think, it's a new product. How am I going to get one million ARR on it? That's the whole point of asking for the money in the first place, um, which is where your kind of marketing thing comes in. If you've invented something new and you're trying to market it, it's a bit of a minefield. Right, which brings me on to my next point, which is how did you go about marketing it? Because if you're going for investment, the investors need to know that you're able to sell it and market it longer term. So what was your um, what was your approach to marketing? Uh, we've been sort of lucky that um, because we built this bit of tech that manages massive things uh, and everybody else hasn't, we got a lot of people that nobody else could do anything with. So they would sort of find out about us that you know, if you've got a massive inventory feed, there's not many people who will be able to do anything with it for you. Um, so people have come to us, but it's been all the problem people with huge feeds. The biggest feed we've had was three and a half million products. So that's a lot of products to optimize on a daily basis. And then how do you build the structures to sell those products? And how do you optimize the bids to sell those products? So one problem led to another problem, which led to another problem, which basically was our product roadmap. All these problems we hit were how we ironed it out. Um, then we built um, MLOD. Uh, which is machine learning on demand, uh, it's the opposite to big tech. It doesn't make any big changes. It doesn't take, it just takes the rubbish out of your account. So if you think about a website converts at 3%, that means 97% of your spend isn't working. So, uh, and if you want to grow your sales, the only thing you can optimize is your 3% that works because that's all Google gives you data on. And you have to have had 15 conversions in the last 30 days on those to be able to see how you can bid on them. So still these 97% of the stuff that doesn't work. So what MLOD does is it looks at the 97% and it chops it up like this and just gets rid of it. So it's a huge machine learning piece of kit. And we got this um, audit page we put up. So people could um, type in their uh, AdWords ID uh, and their password and it will do an analysis of the account and tell them how much of that spend isn't working and will never work. So you get quite a big bang for your buck to start with. Because obviously the waste is built up in the account over years. So depending on how old the account, how big the account is, there could be a lot of waste in there. We've looked at over $500 million worth of spend and between 10 and 30% of every account is full of this waste that has never converted and will never convert. And you spend that every month on Google because Google will let you do a negative search term report, let you do a negative keyword report. It won't let you find every single data point in your account that's never converted. Once you start taking this stuff out, it, we, we, we did wonder what would happen. You know, we take the stuff out. Is it going to just, we have to build hard? What will happen? And Google just goes, oh, my God. Right, we'll spend it over here. So the sales go up and your romance goes up. And you think, oh, happy days. So this little tool lets us sort of predict what's going to happen. And it's different for different companies. Um, but it was very effective. Um, I tend to do sort of speaking mainly. So um, I'll do an event and I'll on the screen behind me, I'll say, if you go to this audit page and you look around the room and then you'll see somebody's face go, <laughs> and, and that's the one who's just found out you're spending 35000 a month on zero conversions. <laughs> they beat a path to you. They go, oh, we're spending all this money. There's a lot of people don't believe it. So it's one of these things like I had somebody say to me, if I thought for one minute you could do this, I would take your arm off. Um, because there's, there's a lot of liars in industry as well. And you have to sort of think when you're marketing, what type of people are I marketing against? 
am I marketing against other tech companies that lie about their products or lie about their services? Is this a, is this a new thing? Is, or is I, am I repeating something else that everyone else has done, but I'm doing it better? Um, how am I going to overcome the objections of the people who are looking at this? Am I just, you know, same old, am I an also around? We took on one client and they had um, the XMD of AO.com uh, who had taken over as their chairman. And he asked to see me before um, we signed. And I said, well, I'm not keen on AO. They've been trying to sort of get my tech for years and I'm not going to give it away. So I'm not going to tell him how it works or anything. Uh, and they said, yeah, yeah, that's fine, that's fine. You won't do that. And they came in to see me and he said, if I had a pound for everyone who told me their tech worked, I'd be a millionaire. Which was very ironic because he's a millionaire. Um, and uh, I said, all right, all right. I, I know that you'll be able to use this tech forever. I know. So I'll put a break clause in for you. If you're not happy, you can leave. And their sales have doubled and their spenders halved. So um, he's very happy. But it's quite hard work having to prove to every single person that you're not a liar when you're in an industry that's full of people that's, that, that, that fib, basically. Um, so you have to think about how you're going to break through that. And that's possibly one of the biggest challenges, where how do you prove your integrity to your marketplace? So what... It- what tips do you have for somebody that's just starting out so they don't have all of the social proof, so they can't prove with case studies and use cases and testimonials and referrals and things like that as well? If somebody was just starting out, what advice would you give them to um, to prove, prove that, basically? You've got to have self-belief. If you don't believe it, no one's going to believe it. I meet people and they go, I've got this. Well, I think, I think it could be a good idea, but, you know, I don't, I, I, I don't know if it's going to work or... Yeah. Who is going to give you a penny? Nobody. You've got to have conviction in what you're doing. And if you don't have conviction in what you're doing, don't do it. So when you talk about your product, be really, really positive. And you're going to hear stuff that you don't want to hear. Oh, I've heard this all before. And you have to kind of not go for the person's throat at that stage. Uh, but you've got to let it wash over you because this is the first time they have a conversation with you and explain why you're different and where you've come from. And, and, and the one thing, one bit of feedback I've always had is, don't always understand what you're saying, Elizabeth, but I love your energy and your passion. Um, and that's people want to see you've got the energy for it. And they want to see you've got the passion for it. So if you can do nothing else, just be passionate and you'll be a lot more convincing. Great advice there. And also based on what you were saying before about looking for investment and talking to many people, like just having those doors closed in front of you all the time. Uh, there's a few people that I've interviewed in the past as well. And the, the recurring theme is just you've got to be so resilient, <laughs> you know, entrepreneurship is about not giving up um and some of the best advice we were given was by the chairman of another company one of our first ever clients so we went down to see him at his private members club in london and um glenn was doing his mba and he wanted to speak to him about his experiences at a particular company and funnily enough he actually referred work into us off the back of that um and he said that the mistake everybody makes is they try and make their product perfect product doesn't have to be perfect it has to be less shit than everyone else's. So when we're developing and when we're sort of trying to get a product out the door, we've got a product roadmap and the, oh, I want to do this, I want to do that. Is it less shit than everything else? That's the key thing. It's got to do its job. It's got to you know, do what it says it does. doesn't have to be perfect. just has to be less shit than everyone else's. Great advice. Stellar advice. So one thing on that one, which I always find very entertaining is... How do you manage with developers that are completer finisher personality types and don't like launching something that's not quite perfect or not quite finished yet? They don't last with us very long. <laughs> uh, it tends to be the older ones, actually. Um, so still younger than me, but the older ones, they tend to get quite stuck in their way. So we found early on, if you've got somebody that just won't release something, you know, you eat an elephant a bite at a time. You're not going to sit down and just gobble an elephant down, are you? And we're the same when we develop. So, you know, you eat it a bite at a time. So you should always have something ready. If you haven't defined what you're doing and you can't spit something out, then you're not doing the right task. So it's all about how can we get things out of it by incrementally so we can see what's going on. Uh, I'm not a developer. Uh, I've never been a developer. I did think about when my son went to university. They also did a part-time thing as well. And I said, oh, gosh, I could come part-time, Carl Ritchie. He's like, my life will be over, mother. You're not coming. Um, so that, that was the end of my... <laughs> I thought you had to understand this stuff to do it. You don't. You've just got to be able to know what your idea is and explain it to other people. And then it's their job to turn it into a bit of code. 
I think that was always my problem because I, I studied, you were talking about your daughter in computer science uh, before we started recording because I studied electrical, electronic engineering and then changed computer science. And I think I was one of eight women in the first degree and then one of four women in the second one. I say this as if I've got two degrees. I haven't because I, I couldn't. It was just awful. Um, <laughs> I, I got like some guy tried to run me over with his bicycle <laughs> because he didn't like the fact I spoke up in a lecture. <laughs> and it was, yeah, anyway, it was awful. But yeah, it's... Um, it is interesting the the complete fir- complete finisher personality types and uh, and what goes on in in those sort of sectors and I think as well like because I was like it doesn't actually matter what it what it does it's the outcome that it it delivers and then I think it was no surprise that I ended up in a marketing role after that. <laughs> <laughs> but I think marketing has such an important role in tech because when you're when you've got the tech. Uh, you want to tell everybody everything about it, which takes quite a long time. And, and, and marketing is the missing link between um, you having this brilliant idea that does all this amazing stuff uh, and another human being be able to understand it. So, um, and it, it's the marketing thing is so easy to get wrong. It's really, really, I know because I've got it wrong again and again and again. Um, Google bought me a book, um, not last Christmas, but the Christmas before, and it was about going from 10 to 10,000 people. I think Ramsbottom might object if I drew another 10,000 people in here, but it was a really interesting book. And what really, um, there was a section in it on product, product marketing, product market fit. Um, and basically, I think I'd been trying to hire the sorts of marketing people you would have hired 20 years ago. And those bits of marketing that they used to really focus on 20 years ago don't add a lot of value now those bits you can get somebody to do as a subcontractor but if you're a tech company what you've got to have is a scalable funnel um preferably inbound and preferably you know the bits where you know well i i I can't have hundreds of phone calls a day so i have to have very 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 qualified leads how do i nurture those leads what sort of information and we haven't cracked the whole what do we tell people? If you look at our website, it's a bit appalling. Uh, it's too complicated. It's very messy. It was written by a marketing person who didn't know what we did, who worked in our business, but just didn't grasp what we're about and didn't know how to convey it to other people. So that marketing thing is really important. Because the one thing everyone says is, oh, Elizabeth, when you explain it to me, it, it sounds great, but I just didn't get that off your website. I'm like, oh. Um. <laughs> <laughs> marketing is that missing link between the inventor and the customers uh, and it's you have to find somebody that can convey it in plain English but not dumb it down so much it looks like the same as everyone else that's why I love tech so much and especially working with tech founders because they're so passionate about what they're doing and they're so passionate about everything that's gone into the tech that they just want to talk about it and everything that went into it and the the light bulb moment for me was um, I presume you've been to home Firth at some point in your life have you been to home Firth? I haven't actually you've been to home Firth. I'm a day no. well it's um it's a little market town little Yorkshire market town where um it's like last of the summer wine was filmed if you can paint the picture in your mind <laughs> so my first business I started making olive oil in Sardinia and I was obsessed with the process and everything and I was just I got really into the science of um, what made a great olive um, the the prime growing conditions and then the pressing conditions and the bottling conditions and I, I geeked out on it so much and then I used to do like little market stores selling the olive oil and other sort of Sardinian foods at the time but basically trying to sell this olive oil based on getting everybody else as excited of the geeky stuff as I was and they were like what because like literally the people of Homeforth were not interested in that <laughs> not a farmer's market on a Saturday afternoon and um, it was like the light bulb moment I was like hang on a minute they only want to know what it tastes like and how they can use it and why they should be paying nine pounds for a 250 mil bottle instead of three pounds down in Sainsbury's so I was just like oh this makes so much sense now. <laughs> um, and it's interesting. I think when you have that light bulb moment and then you, you go to these events and trade shows and you listen to people talk about their company, it's not just in tech. It is. It's that, you know, they're so passionate about what it is that they're doing. They expect people to be as excited about it as they are. Um, and it is exactly what you were saying. It's that missing link. You've got to be able to translate it in a way that people understand. Yeah, well, we sort of explain it now as... Um, our customers on average on the last year had a 38% increase in sales with an average 49% increase in ROAS. And people still go, 
that's ridiculous. No, 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 no. That's the truth. And I think uh, there's another stat on our website somewhere that says the customers we've had over the lifetime they've been with us have on average grown by 388% with a, an 80-odd percent increase in ROAS. The numbers we nail are amazing, but I think I'm probably better off saying, oh, we will deliver an 8.5% increase in sales uh, because it's a much more, it feels like a much more achievable number. Um, so we've, we've got these great stats. We've got people that say really lovely things about us. Lockdown has been amazing. We had one of our smaller clients um, did 1.4 times their annual revenue in a month. Wow. Which, yeah, yeah. That was, uh, we didn't hear much from him because he was obviously, he's, he's in the gardening <laughs> sector. He does all sorts of um, uh, like you know, flint stuff and bark and and because everyone shut down, he was still going. B and Q, everyone else. We have uh, another client who's the leading pump um, retailer in the UK. Their sales went off the charts because B and Q shot, Screw Fit shot. There was just these tremendous opportunities for people to 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 you know to go to town because they're people like us. They're people that are very excited about their businesses and what they can do in their businesses. It, it's a dynamic that works really, really, really well. Uh, and we've tried to move that dynamic and that success into a SaaS product. Uh, and we've got the SaaS product out with customers, and they're just as excited about it, and it works really, really well. And they can still say, "Oh, Elizabeth, it's done this, and it's done, it's done exactly what you said it would." Well, please don't be surprised. Um, I should really put a money back guarantee on it, so that you know. <laughs> please don't be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> I said this would happen. It's a bit like the occupational psychology. Uh, people fill out all the forms. You used to call me the White Witch. Yo, you can read my mind. No, no, no. I've read the form you filled in. Uh, and that tells me all about you, uh, your answers. And, and it's the same with the audit that we have. People fill it, you know, they put their Google details in, we pull it all back, we mash it all together. And I know what they're capable of achieving. So it's no surprise, really. But uh, it's a surprise to them because they don't know. Yeah, I could just imagine your customers like going, oh, well, I, you know, I'm so amazed that this has happened. And you'd be like, yeah, well, that's what we said in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's not a good thing always. Um, you've got to think about it. if you've got a very disruptive product. Um, so in the PPC market, you uh, if, if you're a PPC expert, do you really want something automating a big chunk of your job? Um, if you're an agency, do you really want something that's going to slash your client's budgets? You know, if you've got, so we work with one particular client uh, and they've got 178 chemist warehouse, third largest retail in Australia. Uh, we managed their Google shopping account. It had 178% increase in sales at a reduction in cost. How do you explain that to your finance director? You know, well, well, you know well, what are you going to do next month? Um, <laughs> so it leads to all these other questions. And if you're somebody that measures your success by the size of your budget, and you need a much smaller budget to do exactly the same sales or more sales, then that's going to be very uncomfortable for you. And this is why we're we're changing the metrics we talk about. We don't talk about any of the normal PPC stuff. We talk about sales. We talk about margins. We talk about um, ROAS. We don't talk about any other PPC measures at all. We talk about things that people run their businesses off. So you talk in the language that business owners understand. <laughs> what? That's what we're trying to do. Because <laughs> I'm just like, I'm just thinking, I wonder if people listening to this are aware. So PPC, pay-per-click, ROAS, return on ad spend, just in case anybody listening to this is like, uh, what are you talking about? Because that is such a big problem. So many people invest so much money in advertising across any border. I think they've been doing it for years, um, but don't always understand what is working and what's not working because sometimes understanding what's not working is more important than understanding what's working especially based on what you're saying as well yeah absolutely but the great thing about what we're doing is we're just we're just removing waste so we're not saying oh you need to be doing this thing or that thing or the other thing regardless of whether you're doing all that stuff or not the biggest bang for your buck is getting rid of the waste in the account that's the thing that's going to have the biggest impact because that money will then be instantly reinvested um and more bad stuff will come out and it will remove that again and off it goes. So um, it, it's a way of dealing with trash. You know, you wouldn't have a restaurant have half the seats covered in rubbish. You, you clear your tables, you clear everything away to maximise the amount of revenue you're going to get. And it's the same in Google. But if, if you've got loads of trash lying around in your account, but it's costing you money, um, it, it's just going to have a massive impact on your sales. And people, at the end of the day, we're here to make money. Everybody, if your company is not making money, you're not going to have a company for very long. Um, and if your competitors are beating you, you have to find a way to, to beat them. And, and it's a very simple way of just, you know, one little thing 
um, and, and hammering at home. But, you know, it, depending on what your perspective is, if, if your PPC budget is your sort of um, pseudo willy, so to speak, look at me, look how big my willy is, I've got a massive budget. Uh, and I take a huge chunk off of that. You're not going to feel so great about it. So when we're marketing it to people, we have to also sort of spy on them on LinkedIn to see, um, is this somebody who's a dyed in the wall PPC person or is this a business owner who just wants growth? Uh, and we then have to tailor it very much to if you're a PPC person or an agency, what you want to be able to do is sleep in bed at night and for the account not to do anything crazy. So we can sell you a much lower version of what we do. If you're a business owner uh, and you, you're going for massive growth, then we'll give you everything and you can hammer it as hard as you want. So they're very, very different. So it's not always the same product, different messages. Love that. So you're basically reinforcing something that I say all the time, which is reinforce, like, suit. Target your message with who you're trying to reach. So don't try to reach everybody with the same messaging because it's just going to fall on deaf ears. So yeah, target your audience with the message that you want to get. Um, but I did want to ask you as well, because you you touched on this before, which is around um, selling to people that feel like their, dro- their job is threatened because obviously AI uh, does replace jobs. How are you having that conversation and um, what, are the, what are the things that are cropping up as a result of it? Uh, well, the, the conversation we have is the stuff we're doing is stuff that you wouldn't want to do. You wouldn't want to be sitting there trying to identify negatives all day. Like, even if you could get it out on a spreadsheet, who the hell wants to sit there and go through them? Uh, so we're automating something that will add a tremendous amount of value. It, it saves you having to spend lots of time doing other things, trying to get tiny incremental gains. So with all that time you've saved, because it's just going to deliver you a big uplift anyway, what are you going to do? Are you going to try different channels? Are you going to, with the money you've saved, you can invest it maybe in traditional media or something like that? Go a bit old school. Um, there's still good gains to be had from radio and things like that. And local media is so desperate for, for anything. You can get some really good value stuff. That you, gives you the time to set up tests so you can test other things. There's so much more interesting things you could be doing with your time than the grunt work in Google. And it's going to save you such a lot of cash that you'll be able to, you know, if you want to hire another member of staff to do something or invest it in other avenues, that's the way to go. Yeah. Uh, I, for me, it's always one of those, if you're saving loads of money or you're releasing a load of budget that you would otherwise be wasting, it's like, how much could you do in terms of product development, like new staff that you could employ to do other things? You know, I, I think too many people just see it as a short-sighted approach, like just going, oh, yeah, it's just replacing my job. It's like, well, what are all of the other things that you could do instead? Well, exactly. And, and not only that, you can start getting much more strategically involved in your products. So if you... Um, Anchor pumps is an example. Um, the guys there, um, they, 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 they've just grown and grown and grown and grown and grown, and they're spending less and less and less and less on Google. They are maxed out on warehouse space now. So they have two warehouses. They are maxed out. So we have to look at what can we sell that doesn't take up too much space in the, in the warehouse, which are hoses, funnily enough, um, or hoos, as they call them. Like, <laughs> <laughs> So we've got, we've got hoes that we do with them. Uh, they've been able to get um, suppliers from other countries. So they've been, because they've got bigger volumes, they've been able to go further afield to get better deals. So it gives them more margin, which means they can sell more product. Um, we're moving their stuff to other countries and things as well now. So it goes beyond just sort of sitting in your four walls doing what you've always done. You know, we, we're doing things differently now. It's created a whole new set of opportunities. Pricing is something that's really, really, really important. Nobody wants a bloodbath. Nobody wants a race to the bottom. But if you're selling a load of stuff and all of a sudden it's not selling, um, either there's no demand for it, your pricing's wrong. So, you know, pricing is something you really need to keep an eye on. And if you are in a very competitive market, you need to be not reducing all your prices all the time, but have a strategy for how you're going to deal with your competitor um, a bite of that element at a time to make sure you're not losing out on sales and you're not losing out on margin. And that's quite a, a, a technical thing to do. So um, spending your time doing that is going to add far more value to the business than sitting around messing around with the sort of little levers you can do in Google that give you a bit here and a bit there. And it's far more interesting. Definitely more interesting. That's what we want. We don't want dull, droney jobs. Anywhere. So I'd like, I realize I could talk to you about this for ages, but like what's, well, two-sided question. What's next for you personally and what's next for the business? Uh, me personally, gosh, it's always the same. Work, 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 work. I love it. Um, we, we we plan to go into the US this year. 
uh, and we've identified Atlanta as the base. Um, we've, we've sort of been in lots of places. The other thing about uh, being a tech entrepreneur is there are lots of accelerators around, not just necessarily ones in the UK. We've done one in Atlanta. Uh, we've done two in Paris. We've done one in Korea. Well, Korea is a completely different place. The Koreans are giving money away. They gave us... Um, hundred odd grand or so. it was a lot of money basically and uh it gives you so rather than as a business say right we're going to go to america and you just rock up and you do it it gives you a nice soft landing spot it gives you a network of people um loads of friendly faces and things to sort of go off and, and a base to start from so it's a good way while you're small and while you well, you won't have the time but while you've got the, the energy and the enthusiasm to sort of go out and do all these different places in korea the um Everything's different. Google Maps doesn't work out there. Um, the Wi-Fi on buses is incredible, but terrible in offices. So if you're trying to do a Wi-Fi call, you go and do it on a bus and everyone gives you daggers. The people are so kind and they will try and help you, but they don't speak English. Um, you know, the, the, unless you've got the right visa, you can't do online banking. So they gave us all this money and put it in a bank. And unlike the UK, where you go to the hole in the wall and you get out 250 pounds, you can get out tens of thousands of ones. So the boys were there with a... Car, shoving it in their pockets and their boots and their backpacks and things and they passed it all up into little um envelopes to bring it back to the uk got it through customs i said don't put it in your don't put it in your luggage you've got to carry it on you start drugs dealers with all this money and everything got it back to the uk and then barclays said they wanted 10 percent to convert it i said right put it back on your body and take it back to korea and spend it over there so there's all sorts of, yeah, so our plan was we've been all these places and we were going to go to um, Atlanta. We've got a business, we've got a few clients in Atlanta now, which is great. Um, getting the right advice for setting up in different countries can be challenging. Again, the Growth Hub have done quite a lot of that for us, but we found one brilliant um, uh, attorney who does, who lives in the UK as well. So he knows both sides, which is important. When we set up in Korea, we had to set up a legal entity. That was a nightmare. An absolute nightmare because we were speaking to accountants that didn't speak English um, and, and sort of trying to translate around the houses. Things like LinkedIn in Korea. Um, if you're a younger person, they're sort of using it a little bit more. If you're older, it's seen as an insult to your company to be on LinkedIn because it shows you're disloyal to them and you're thinking about leaving. So there's all how everything works in different places, all totally different. But I think America is the closest to us. Atlanta is there's regular flights from Manchester so we can get backwards and forwards. It's too expensive to have developers in America. They are just pay mega money. We went to Atlanta, Seattle, um, San Francisco. The time difference is the best in Atlanta. Like I say, you can get backwards and forwards easier. Uh, and we're just going to keep developing in the UK. There's no point in trying to relocate it anywhere else. Anywhere else is just going to be like sales sites and marketing and that sort of thing. And any kind of local call center stuff that you might need. But everything's going to stay in the UK. Um, we haven't actually managed to achieve that because of COVID. So we've got, we've got the customers started, but we can't actually get out there ourselves. Uh, I'm not quite sure what's going to happen with that, but everyone seems to be all right with doing stuff online at the moment. So we were told it was going to be hard to deal with Americans unless you're actually there and sort of they can eyeball you face to face. But it seems to be going OK so far. We've got a, a couple more, one in um, Montana, another one in Alabama uh, that we should be signing in the next couple of weeks. So the, the American thing is all kind of moving along nicely. But I think like every other tech company, it's that bloody scalable funnel. How do you do it without being, because I, I can't scale me. So for each market, I have to find the right way in and the right way to approach it. Uh, and then eventually you might get there. Who knows? <laughs> so are you, are, you, are you looking at recruiting another version of you or you know, like somebody else to, to do your well, thing as well? Or? Funny enough, they say that the best people to hire are failed entrepreneurs. Because oh, really? <laughs> I've not because heard that but because they can do a bit of everything, they understand. If you hire, if you hire a, a marketing person with ten years' experience who's done a degree in marketing, you're probably hiring the wrong person um, because they're used to doing things quite an old-fashioned way. Marketing's changed so much the last two or three years. You need someone. If, if anyone comes to you at an interview and says, "I'm, I'm not really into growth marketing," or "I'm not really into um, the digital side of things." That's a warning sign. That's a run for this. this. is somebody that wants to do branding and writing a bit of vanilla content. This is someone that can't keep their skills up to date or, is, or won't keep their skills up to date. So you have to be prepared to sort of meet people that, you know, if, if you do want branding and stuff like that, do that as a separate project. You don't need that all day, every day. What you do need all day, every day 
is new customers, new content, new ways to engage with people. So look for people have those kinds of um, experience and aptitude, not somebody who's necessarily got 10 years worth of experience in the wrong thing for you. Um, I'll, I'll dig that book out for you. I'll let you know the bits in it. Because when I read it, I was like, oh, my God, this is a light bulb moment. We've been doing it all wrong. <laughs> The question was I've gone completely off at a tangent. <laughs> I love it because you've actually answered my like final question, which is any passing words of wisdom. And I'd, I'd like, can you top this? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you've had it all there, really. <laughs> I think that my biggest sort of tip is just keep going, just keep going. Um, it's it really is ninety eight percent perspiration and two percent inspiration. Um, if you look at regular employment, you know they brought out all these sort of. Um, incentive management schemes and you know shares and this that and the other and that just rewards people for staying it doesn't reward people for any kind of creativity or doing brilliant because those people will get really bored in that kind of environment and will leave and go somewhere else so um but as an entrepreneur you've got to have that you've got to have that perseverance you've got to have that you've got to be able to sort of you know if you get hit by something you go well do you know what <laughs> i'm gonna get hit by something else tomorrow so let's just forget about it Whiskey and Diet Coke and a packet of crisps and everything will be right with the world. Um, yeah. Whiskey and Diet Coke? What? No. <laughs> Coke Zero, sorry. <laughs> I don't know. I'm a Scotch drinker, so when you start mixing it with Coke, I think Jack Daniels is about as far as I go with Coke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it really. Just keep going. Great piece of advice. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. And if anybody's listening that wants to get in touch with you, contact you, what's the best way of doing that? Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Contact me there. Um, Elizabeth Clark uh, at Dream Agility um, or my, yeah, uh, yeah LinkedIn is the best place to get me or Twitter. Nearly called it Twitter there. Twitter. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just at Dream Agility. <laughs> uh, and I'd be happy to speak to you. <laughs> brilliant well thank you so much it's been a pleasure and until next time see you later Bye. when marketing isn't your primary focus or area of expertise it can quickly become very overwhelming frustrating and end up at the top of your i'm avoiding this list if you'd like to make your life easier and get results from your marketing then i invite you to come and join us in the curious marketing club a virtual community full of support, guidance, and know-how. For details about the club and for the show notes from this episode, please visit my website, charliewyman.com. If you enjoyed this episode and want to learn from other people who are being curious and doing amazing things, then please subscribe and keep listening. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.